I don't know if you've ever been to one of those restaurants where they have a challenge. Have you ever, anyone been to a restaurant where they have like the, the two kilo burger and if you eat the burger, you get it for free? Anyone, anyone seen those ones? Anyone ever done one of those challenges? I don't know. When I was younger, I always used to think I could do that. I never did it. Like I would feel physically ill, but I always thought I could do that. Now, for the last month and a half, I've been meditating on the book of Ruth. I, I read the book of Ruth with our kids. Can we, can we just turn that down just a tad, uh, Joey, with the, the, um, the, the speaker there? Uh, but, so I thought, hey, you know what would be a really good idea as, uh, as I was praying and preparing for this? I'm like, we're going to look at the book of Ruth and it's going to be great. And then I realised it's a long book when you look at it that way. Now, the book of Ruth is a fantastic little book. Um, it fits into the Bible, uh, obviously being a fantastic book. It's, it's in the Word of God. But it is given in a specific time of history. It's got a date stamp in it. Lots of the books of the Bible don't. This one does. It says that it is set in the time of the book of Judges. And uh, the time of the Judges is somewhere between 1450 BC and 11, uh, sorry, 1170 BC. That doesn't mean much, but if you're thinking biblical history, think between the book of Joshua and the book of First Samuel. So, uh, I mean, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He went not knowing where he was going and God told him to go to Canaan. He arrived there. He had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a couple of sons, Esau and Jacob. Uh, Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was the, the chosen one, if you will. Esau rejected God. And so Jacob uh, went and had 12 sons who became the namesakes of the tribe of Israel. And although, uh, oh, sorry, through miraculous circumstance, God called this family that he had chosen to work through down into Egypt. Uh, and then for 400 years, these 70 people now, it had grown to, over the next 400 years, grew into a multitude of probably close to 2 million people. Uh, we know the story of Pharaoh rose up who didn't know Joseph and he oppresses the people. So God calls Moses, and Moses then goes and leads the people out of Egypt. God leads him with a strong hand, um, and through the plagues, he takes them through the Red Sea, eventually wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies, then Joshua takes over, and Joshua then leads the people into the conquest of the land, and then Joshua, at about, I think it's 110 years old, dies and then slowly but surely, all the men who knew Joshua dies, and that leads us into the time of the book of Judges. Now, has anyone here read the book of Judges and thought, this is strange? <laughs> I mean, it is one of those books you look at and you're like, wait, wait, is this the Bible? You know, like there is some really weird stuff going on in there. And it is summed up by the phrase that there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And it is truly an indication of what mankind does when he abandons objective truth and turns to his own heart for guidance. And we see that happening a lot today. But look, uh, that, that's not the point of the sermon. That's just the introduction. Uh, but we see in this dark, dark time of Israel's history, uh, there is a short love story that is given that has really big implications for us. As we said, this book is called Ruth. However, uh, if it was going to be made into a movie today, you would have the poster and it wouldn't just have a picture of Ruth. It would have the, the top three stars. So you've got a lady named Naomi who is a lead role. You've got Ruth and you've got Boaz. Now, I'm going to assume you've perhaps read this book or you know a little bit about it because we are not going to, we're not going to read the whole thing. Much to my displeasure, I would love to do that. Um, however, we don't have the time today. So we've read most of chapter one. But we're going to look at this love story. And the funny thing about this book is most people say, when you say, what's Ruth about? 
and you say it's a love story, what would you say it is? It's a love story between Ruth and Boaz. The truth is it's not. <laughs> it's actually a love story between Ruth and Naomi. Uh, not, in a, not in a physical sense, but in a familial sense, we see that what God is doing and what God is working in the book of Ruth is a love story between a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. And Boaz is almost a supporting character. So anyway, let's, uh, let's pray and then we will crack straight in. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this book of Ruth. Lord, we're so thankful that you have called us to be your people. And Lord, we thank you that you gave us your word. And we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us. We pray that you'd bless us as we look, open our eyes and help us to love you more because of what we see. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. All right. Now, this book can be broken up into four acts which roughly correlate with the four chapters. So in the first chapter, the first chapter goes for about 10 years. So in the first chapter, and we've read it before, there is a man whose name is Elimelech, and Elimelech and his family are in Bethlehem, which at this stage, uh, we read uh, as I read through Ruth with uh, the boys, and I said, boys, who was born in Bethlehem? And they said, David and Jesus. I'm like, yes, we're getting somewhere. At this stage, Bethlehem is a little town. It's a small hick town. No one really knows about it. It is uh, not a a political or a commercial centre, it is a small farming village um, and during this time there is a famine in the land and Bethlehem, which actually means house of bread, is in famine. So Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and their two sons, Marlon and Chilion or Kilion, and they go from Bethlehem and journey about a 100 kilometres across the Dead Sea, they probably go down around it, into the land of Moab. Now Moab is a place that was a traditional enemy of Israel. When you're growing up or when you're reading the Bible, do you notice that there's a lot of names that sort of pop up? Well, here you got, you got your Ammonites, your Amalekites, the Moabites, you know, like when I was a kid I used to think the Vegemites, you know, they're, they're all in there. And these, these, these nations are there and you sort of lose track of them, but the Moabites were a traditional foe of Israel. They were descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. Um, they were a nation who, when Israel was coming through the wilderness, you remember the story about Balaam coming to curse Israel. That was at Balak, the king of Moab's insistence. Uh, after uh, Balaam failed to curse Israel in Numbers 22 through 24 and rather blessed him, it seems that the Moabites sent young women in, idolatrous women in, to seduce the Israelites to bring God's judgment upon them. And so the Moabites were, from the first Exodus start, uh, they are the enemies of Israel. Uh, in the book of Judges, do you remember the fat king Eglon? Anyone remember that story where Ehud goes and he's got a knife and he stabs it into him and he's so fat, you remember that the blade disappears? He was the king of Moab and the Moabites had been ruling over the Jews. Now that incident was about 80 years before this, but the Moabites, as we said, were an enemy of the people of Israel. They worshipped a god by the name of Chemosh, who like many deities of the Near East, demanded child sacrifice. It was a wicked religion. Um, and so whilst the story doesn't indicate that going to Moab was a wrong decision, it's inferred that it wasn't a good decision. Um, so Moab is a place of, uh, of the enemies of God. And the narrator says, well, he doesn't say it's a bad thing, but it's kind of clear it is. Now, it also makes clear in the story that this move was intended to be a short-term one. Uh, in the King James Bible, it says that they went 
to uh, Moab to sojourn there. But then in the next verse, in verse 2, it says they continued there. And then we see that they're starting to take wives for their sons. And then 10 years later, they're still in Moab. I mean, this is a short-term decision, but now it's become a long-term thing. And the story does not say what happened. But within 10 years, Elimelech's dead, Marlon is dead, and Chilion is dead. Now, this is a tragedy for Naomi. Uh, in the ancient world, any time now, actually, being a widowed or a widower is terrible. It's emotionally fraught. It's a terrible time. But in the ancient world, it was catastrophic. I mean, Naomi is now left uh, socially vulnerable and weak. Widows in the Bible had little to no political or economic clout, and they were reliant upon the compassion of others. I mean, in that culture, your family was your security net. That's why if you had a lot of sons, this is good. You know, if I was in the ancient world, winner, winner, chicken dinner. I've got four boys, uh, Ryan, not so much. No, but uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a good thing to have sons because they will take care of you in your old age. Now, I think it's the other way around. I think the sons sort of abandon you and the daughters look after you. Maybe you are on a, you are on a winner here. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so in verse number six of Judge, uh, Ruth 1, sorry, Naomi hears that God has visited the people of Israel in sending them bread. And, uh, and so she decides to go back. And in a moment of clarity, as they're just about to start the journey, she's got her two daughter-in-laws. They're about to leave, probably with their swags on their back, with everything they own in the world. She stops and goes, no, this, this is crazy. This is crazy. Orpah, Ruth, go, go, go home. You don't need to come with me. <laughs> I mean, I have nothing to offer you. I don't have any more children. I, I don't know if you noticed in the story there, she said, I'm not going to have any more sons for you to marry. It's kind of a cultural thing. You, you wouldn't get it. <laughs> uh, but she goes, I'm not going to have any more sons for you to marry. And even if I did, would you want to wait around for them to grow up? <laughs> no. Go back to your family. Go back to your gods. And, uh, and, 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 and that would be the way to go. Now, one of the sisters, uh, one of the, sorry, the daughter-in-law's author, turns around and goes back. Now, this was not a foolish decision in a physical sense. It's a wise decision from a sight point of view. I mean, for Orpah, where are you going to find another husband? Are you going to go to Israel where you're an enemy, an outsider? No. It makes sense to, to go back to where you're an insider, to where you, your family is. But again, this is, the, uh, this is walking by sight, not by faith. So Orpah made her choice. She went back to her family and to her gods. But we see Ruth in verse 16 through 18 says these famous words, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. Whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. That is covenant language. That sounds like what God said to Abraham. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. And Ruth here is turning from Chemos, turning from Moab and saying, I want into the covenant. I want into the family of God. And isn't it cool that she's, a, she's uh, received, she is taken there. So Naomi and Ruth come back and as they go back into Bethlehem in verse number 19, the two of them come, they enter. And if you, if you look there in verse number, at the end of 19, the people gather around them and say, is this Naomi? And Naomi says to them, call me not Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. What a, what a, what a charming lady. No, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Uh, for the Lord, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. And as we look at this chapter, one of the great themes of Ruth is this concept of emptiness. Emptiness. 
poor Naomi, and look, honestly, she, in what she says here, she, you can see that her thinking is based in God's sovereignty, but she sees no hope there. But this concept of emptiness that Naomi has, she said, I went out full and I came back empty in verse 21. And this is a picture of life on earth. I mean, this is life. We live in a very hard life. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, life is not easy. Life is hard and contains bitterness. Uh, Shakespeare, not that I'm a great Shakespeare reader, but in Macbeth there's this phrase, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Even the finest family on earth will one day be broken by death. One day be broken, if not by relationship breakdown, which is becoming more and more common, but by death itself. I mean, I, I think that my family, like my boys and Justine and I, we are a very happy family most of the time. Sometimes it's, Mum, come and take your grandkids before the Lord takes them home. But no, but, but we are a very, very happy family. And the sad thing is, as I look around at my family, at my boys, the, the, the truth is this, that one day, one of those little boys, unless something catastrophic happens, one of those little boys will bury Justine and I and all his brothers. Isn't that a terrible thought? You look at that, you're like, well, it was good I came to church tonight. No, it, it's true though, and God wants us to remember this, not that we might fall into despair, but that we might see the hope of the gospel. You see, the gospel is God undoing the brokenness of life, God undoing the emptiness of life and giving us the promise of a new life, even in the most broken of times. But that's going to be as we continue through the book. So let's go then to Act number two. So the first Act, 10 years, Act number two, chapter two, the time of barley harvest. You look in verse 22 of chapter one, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, chapter two starts out with a narrator's note that, uh, that Ruth can't see. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite has said to Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. Now, where Naomi has given up on the goodness of God, Ruth has not. The language that Ruth uses here, she said, I am going to go and glean in the field. I'm going to go, and now that word glean, it is a specific term. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, God said to the Jews, when you plant a field, when you go to harvest it, you are not to harvest the whole thing. You are to leave the corners for the poor. Well, he actually says you leave the corners for the widow, for the orphan, and for the stranger, for the, for the alien, for those from outside your country. And it's really, really interesting that God did that. I mean, God could have just said to the rich people, when you harvest your field, put aside some for the poor and give it to them. But he said, no, you leave that there and they can go and enter into your economic system. <laughs> they can work and they can produce an income for themselves. Anyway, we're not here preaching about social justice, whatever that means, but I just think it's really interesting that God did not implement a welfare system, but rather he implemented a system that allowed all the honour of work. But that's by the by. All right, so as we read the story, though, Ruth just happens, the King James Bible says that her hap, or she happened to light on a part of the field that belonged to Boaz. I love things that just happen. <laughs> you know, in the Bible and in our lives, there is nothing that just happens. 
God is the one who guides us through life. And it was God who directed Ruth rather to the field that belonged to Boaz. And God is working in our lives too to make things happen. <laughs> you know, and, and we know from the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 28 that God is working all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so just like Ruth was led, so we are led and God made a great provision for Ruth. Now as Ruth turns up in the field, she finds Boaz there and Boaz comes from Bethlehem and he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. Now remember, we're in the time of the judges here where people are taking concubines, they're killing people, they're raping people, there's all these things going on and Ruth happens to end up in the field of a man who is a shining light in the darkness. He is a man who blesses his workers. He is a man who, when no one really seems to care what God thinks, he is a man who leaves his field for the poor the way God said. I mean, can you imagine being a businessman and I said to you, uh, you can only keep 80% of your business. In fact, you're to have uh, 20% you're to leave for poor people to come and take it. You would say, Oh, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> you know, but Boaz did. He said, I will leave the corners of the field for the poor. Uh, there's other things we can see about Boaz being a, a, a good man, being a blessing there, but he is a man who does what is right. He is an older man from what we read. And when Ruth comes into the field, he looks over and he says, who is that? Whose damsel is this? And the servant answers, it is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. So Ruth is there working, 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 and Boaz says, who is that? Now, sometimes when you read Bible comic books, you sort of see Boaz with like, almost like a Looney Tune sort of love hearts in his eyes, you know, you know, he's like, who is that girl? Boaz is not doing that. <laughs> Boaz is not here romantically interested in Ruth at all. He is looking at her and he goes, who's that? And he goes, it's the Moabite. Did did you see the response there? Uh, If you're following along in in another version, it's a similar reading, but the the reaper or the the servant who's in charge says, it's the Moabite, the Moabite damsel. Can you hear there that he doesn't see her as one of them. He says, it's the Moabite, it's the Moabite damsel. And you see though that Boaz goes up to her and says, hearest thou not my daughter? You see, Boaz is someone who offers Ruth much. He offers her, number one, welcome and social inclusion. The work is referred to her as the Moabitess or the Moabite damsel, whereas he says, you are a daughter. He, uh, the, 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 the workers here don't care for her, but Boaz says, I have commanded, in verse number nine, he says, I have charged the young men that they shall not touch thee. And again, when you look through the book of Judges, you know why that's important. Uh, this was not a time of moral purity in Israel. It is a time where women would be abused and uh, men would use their position of power rather than serving them to abuse them. Uh, so he offered her welcome and inclusion. He offered her protection, but then he also gave her provision for her physical needs. So when you read through the book, again, we're not going to read all of it, but he he gave her of his bread. He said, when you are hungry, uh, come and eat the meal with my maidens and my workers. Come and drink of the water which we have brought out of the well. And you can go and glean anywhere in this field, but you may not go elsewhere. You will work in my field and I will protect you. He, he, uh, he took her in under his wing and, uh, and he, he gave her bread, gave her water, and even he even told the young men, he said, when you glean, sorry, when you reap, drop extra stuff for Ruth. 
Let her go where she's not allowed to go. Let her pick up things. And and when you read at the end of the day in verse 17, it comes back and she's got an ephah of barley. I don't exactly know how much that is. I'm not a farmer. Anyone here know what an ephah of barley is? I guess it's a lot because Naomi, when she goes back and Ruth goes, look at what I've got. And she goes in verse number uh, 19, she goes, where have you gleaned today? Where did you collect today? So she comes back from the field with a lot more than she should have. So Boaz here is blessing her. He is welcoming her. He is protecting her. And he is treating her with purity. And this is a great lesson for us. This purity with which Boaz treats Ruth is refreshing. We live in a world today that says that sexual purity is something that doesn't matter. (laughs) That, that, That the human body is there for gratification, whether it's men or women. But Boaz, he says, no, you are a daughter of God. Uh, you have come in, if you look in verse number 12, he, he says that she has come to trust the Lord and that God would give her a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. So Boaz, in seeing her, he says, no, you are a daughter of God. <laughs> the purity there that he treats her with is a great example for us today. Now, at the end of chapter 2, or act 2 rather, Naomi's hopes are rekindled because Ruth says, after she says, where did you glean? Ruth says, I was working in the field of a man named Boaz. And Naomi says in verse 20, blessed be he of the Lord who has not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. Naomi said unto her, this man is next of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And Ruth said, he said unto me, thou shalt keep fast by all my young men until the end of the harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens and that they meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. So for about 12 weeks, Ruth is working in the fields of Boaz, collecting the grain and working hard. And then we get to the end of the barley harvest and that leads us into act number three. But we see the kindness of Ruth to Naomi in chapter two. She is willing to sacrifice and work for Naomi to ensure that she has a provision of food and shelter. Now you might say, well, what does this mean to me? My mother-in-law does not send me out to the field to get grain. And let's go into chapter three and we're going to see some more of this shortly. Now, Naomi now has a plan because... Unlike us, Boaz had a legal moral responsibility to Ruth. And, and again, this is if you don't if you're not familiar with the culture of the time, it's not going to make sense. But Naomi in Ruth chapter three calls her daughter in law and says, What I want you to do is this. I want you to wash, I want you to go to Boaz at night, and I want you to lie at his feet. And ask him to do what the law says. Now, we'll, we'll look at that. But Ruth says, yes, I will. I'll do that in verse 5. And she goes to the floor, the, 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 the threshing floor, and she does all. Now, let's read verse 7 down to verse number 9. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of his cor- the heap of corn. And Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. You know, Ruth comes with a very, very romantic request. Any of you ladies have a great proposal story? 
Everyone loves a good proposal story. You know, you say, where did you propose to your wife? You know, I was on crutches and my wife knew it was coming, so I was so unromantic. I mean, we were down at Q session. I took her somewhere nice, but I, I'd been uh, away at the Royal Military College and, you know, I'm, I'm hopping along and I kind of, I didn't want to get down on one knee because I'm not getting back up and she probably couldn't have picked me back up. You know, I was there. I say, look, I've got a ring in my pocket. Do you want to get married? You know, it was, it was, she knew it was coming. I'm not romantic at all. But Ruth is the utter romantic. You know what she does? She says, hey, marry me because the law says you should. <laughs> How romantic, you know. Hey, you know that law? You're supposed to marry me and I want you to do it. Hey, you know, you have a legal right to me. No, but, but what she says, she says, spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid. What she's saying, and that, that's a, a euphemism for I want you to marry me. She comes to him and says, Boaz, I want you to redeem me. And, and in fact, in the, in the ESV, when Boaz wakes up, he says, who are you? And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Redeemer. Now, when we think of the word redeemer, we think theologically. When I say the redeemer, you might think of Jesus, the redeemer, Christ, our redeemer. Paul used this phrase much in Romans and throughout the epistles to talk about the work, what Christ has done for us. But that the theme of a redeemer actually comes from the Old Testament law. When Moses said in the book of uh, in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if someone is poor and they go into financial strife and they have uh, they have to sell their land and they are going to go into poverty, there is one who was near of kin to them who would come and pay their debt. One who was near of kin, one who was their redeemer, who would come and pay so that this person would be delivered from bondage. And what Ruth is saying is, I want you to be my redeemer. I want you to exercise that legal right that I have to protection in you. Very romantic, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I want you to do that for me. So Ruth is asking Boaz to save her from poverty and emptiness. And I love Boaz's response. Listen here. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not after young men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Boaz's response there, he says, Ruth, blessed are you. Ruth, you could have gone after the young men. Now, Boaz is probably an older man. He's probably closer to Naomi's age than Ruth's age. And so it, I, I suspect that's probably why Boaz hadn't sort of set that up early. But he thought, Ruth is a young widow. She's going to go marry someone young. But he says, no, you have shown great kindness. And it's not kindness to me. It's actually kindness to Naomi and the family of Elimelech, because Ruth is going to be the surrogate mother for Elimelech's child, which again, it's a legal thing in, the, in the, the Old Testament, but he says, this is a great kindness that you show. But listen to the words, and now my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest. And in the words of Boaz there, my goodness, we hear the words of Christ. When we come to him and say, Lord Jesus, in my poverty, I come to you. And I ask you to be my redeemer. I ask you to deliver me from my poverty, from my sinfulness. And we hear the words of Jesus where he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. In the words of Boaz when he says, Fear not, 
I will do unto thee all that thou requirest. Now, Boaz gets even more romantic than Ruth, though. In his response, he says, Howbeit, uh, so now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, however, there is a kinsman nearer than I. I mean, like at our wedding, we had, I think, six groomsmen because Justine has lots of sisters. And so we had six groomsmen. So what Boaz is saying is, look, I wasn't the best man. I was the second best man. So there is another bloke who can marry you. And Ruth's like, oh, okay, you know. Uh, you know, so look, if he wants to marry you, he can do it. If you, if you read through, he says, um, tarry this night, it shall be in the morning, that if he, that's the nearer redeemer, the nearer kinsman, will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do it. But if he will not do the part of the kinsman to thee, then I will do the part of the kinsman. He goes, if this bloke doesn't want to marry you, then I'll marry you. Very romantic, very, very romantic. Every girl wants to hear that, you know. There's another bloke who might marry you, but if he doesn't want you, then I guess I'll do it. <laughs> you know, so as I say, be still my beating heart. But Ruth then comes back and speaks to Naomi and they have a chat about it. And again, we, we're not going to go into that tonight. But then we get to chapter four and I really like chapter four because Boaz, and, and there's again the cultural thing, Boaz goes to the gate of the city and he sits down and it just happens that the man passes by who he needs to talk to again, just happens. There are no just happens to the Christian, but he just happens to walk by and Boaz says, friend, come and sit down. And he sets up this story well. He goes, hey, you remember Elimelech, you know, your brother? Yeah, yeah, okay, him. Uh, Naomi is going to sell a parcel of land that belongs to Elimelech. Now, you are the nearest kinsman. It is your right to redeem it if you go in Ruth chapter 4. And I thought to advertise it to you, buy it before the inhabitants of the land. So he's saying, you can purchase this land if you want. And the man stops and he goes, well, that's a good piece of land. Um, I will redeem it. I will spend my money and I will buy Elimelech's land. Beauty. But then Boaz pulls out his sneaky little, you get a freebie with this land. And again, I do not necessarily agree with the way these people did things, but you buy a field, you get a free wife. Isn't this good? (laughs) But look at what happens. And verse number five, then Boaz says, hey, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth, the Moabitess. Hey, what a deal. Now, this is the only time Boaz calls Ruth the Moabitess, and I think what he's doing is trying to say, you don't want to marry her, <laughs> you know. She's a Moabitess. But no, so he's saying, if you want this field, you must also marry Ruth, and you must raise up children for the dead Elimelech. That's the law, you know, that, that's the rule. And the man stops and he goes, uh, hmm, in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself. I just remembered. I just remembered. I can't. No, he goes this. I, I cannot redeem it lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right for thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, as we read through, what this is showing is the price of redemption was high. I mean, for, for if you were going to marry into the Moabites family, there was a couple of elements there. Number one, there was shame. And this is a shame on a culture. Remember, Ruth is from the enemy. She's a child of, you know, a daughter of God. She's entered into the covenant, but she's still a Moabite to pretty much everyone in the town. And if he marries her, he will be shamed publicly. But then number two, he also has the indignity of needing to support two more women. And again, I, I don't, I'm not saying this in a sense that women need supporting, but in that culture, that's what they did. You would have two more women to support and any children you had from Ruth wouldn't legally be yours. <laughs> and the guy goes, Actually, wait, stop. No, the price of redemption is too high. And Boaz steps up and says, I am willing 
to pay the price. And then they do a whole bunch of funny stuff. They take off their shoes, which is, of course, what you do. You know, <laughs> no, In those days, they took off their shoe and gave it to the other, and that was a sign of a legal contract being made. Um, so the cost of redemption was too high, but Boaz willingly became the redeemer of Ruth and also uh, through Ruth, Naomi. He went through the legal process of showing he was willing to pay the price and he bought, it actually says he bought to himself Ruth the Moabite. I have purchased Ruth to be my wife. And, and again, the language there, not quite what we would use today, but what he is showing is that where others were unwilling or unable to pay a price, Boaz willingly laid down his honour, he laid down his wealth, he laid down his glory so that he might adopt a Moabitess into his family. Now, I can't think of what that picture is in any way. I'll leave, no, no, but look, uh, as that goes on, the people willingly, then they bless Ruth and, and Boaz with a big family blessing. They ask that God would make Ruth like Leah and Rachel and like Tamar, and we won't go into what all that means. And the conclusion of the story is this. Boaz takes Ruth in verse number 13. They take, he takes Ruth. They get married. He went in under her. The Lord gives conception. She bears a son. This son, we know from the story, is then becomes Naomi's child, uh, almost like an adopted child. The son's name is Obed. Now, as we read the story to the end of the book, there is a son born to Naomi in verse 17. They called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so the story goes that this little boy, the child of a Moabites outcast, became the grandfather of the greatest king of Israel and the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that a cool story? <laughs> now, what does that mean for us? I want to I give you a couple of closing thoughts. Number one, emptiness. The world is a hard place. We go through struggles. You might say, not at the moment. Maybe it is at the moment. Maybe you're here tonight and you're feeling a little bit like Naomi. You're feeling like life is bitter. And I'm not going to say it's not. You know, it's, The Bible does not sugarcoat things. It says life is hard. But there is a redeemer, one who came to make all the sad things come untrue, to make all the things that are destructive to turn those around for our good and to make heaven, to make eternity better because they happen. So number one, emptiness. Number two, spiritual poverty. When Ruth came to Boaz, she didn't come to Boaz and say, Boaz, look at what I have to offer you. Look at my credentials. I have great credentials. I have wealth. I have beauty. I have all these things. We don't even know if Ruth was a good looker. She might have been. She might not have been. We don't know, but that's not why Boaz took her. Boaz took Ruth, well, for several reasons. Number one, because there was a law, but number two, because of who he was. Because he was a redeemer. Because he was, number one, a relative. Number two, he was wealthy enough to redeem her. And number three, he was willing to redeem her. And in Christ Jesus, we do not come to him and say, Lord, look at what I have. But rather, we come and as... Um, Oh, I forgot to write down the guy's name. Wait, what's his name? Uh, Horatius Boner. He wrote these words. Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known. Another's tears, another's grief. On these I rest, on these 
alone. The hope of the believer is not our righteousness. In God's eyes, we are the widow. In God's eyes, we come to him and we say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. Lord, I, my righteousness, the, the prophet Isaiah said, our righteousness is as filthy rags. He doesn't just say the things we do wrong are filthy rags, he says the good things we do are filthy rags. And a Christian is not someone who's just said, my bad works will damn me and send me to hell, but rather it is someone who has come to God and says, my goodness will send me to hell as well because it is not sufficient. And so Ruth comes to Boaz and when she comes to Boaz and says, spread your skirt upon me, marry me, it is not because she was worthy, but because he was the redeemer. And when we come to Christ, it is the same. We come to him poor, naked and helpless and he is the one who spreads his clothes on us and clothes us in righteousness. What a saviour, what a redeemer. So, number one, emptiness. Number two, spiritual poverty. And then number three, we see Christ in this story in emptiness, kindness and redemption. You see, the story of the life of Christ, in our story we saw Naomi being emptied, but in the story of Christ, his story, his incarnation is a continual emptying. I mean, it starts off, Paul said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, the scriptures tell us that when Christ the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person in the triune Godhead, came from heaven, he stepped down from that position. And he was born not as a king, but in a manger. Not in a, you know, not in royalty, but to poor, dirt poor parents. (laughs) And then as he lived his life, he lived a life of suffering. He lived a life of sorrow. I mean, until he gets to the end of his life where he takes off his garments and washes his disciples' feet and there he is betrayed, taken to the cross and his very last possession is stripped from him and he dies naked on the cross. He was emptied. Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that ye through his poverty might be rich. He emptied himself. He was our Boaz who emptied his riches to redeem us. But then we see the kindness. We saw that Ruth showed great kindness to Naomi. And in this story, Ruth is almost, well, I'm not going to say almost, she is a picture of Christ. She is one who left her father's home. She is one who became a stranger. I mean, she could have gone back to Moab and remarried and had a life of perhaps comfort, but no, she, by choice, she was abandoned by her parents. She was forsaken by her father. She goes into a foreign land and it was truly, while Boaz redeemed Ruth, it was Ruth that rescued Naomi. And so that is what Christ did for us. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ and has raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So the kindness of of Christ. And then finally, the redemption. We have been bought with a price. 
You see, we, we mentioned it already, but the cost of Ruth's redemption was costly. The price was immense. Uh, the unwillingness of the nearer kinsman to redeem him bears testimony to that. But Boaz was willing to bear the shame of marrying a foreigner. He bore the shame and the cost of adding Ruth and her family and any subsequent children that wouldn't be legally his to his family. He bore the cost. And in Boaz there we see the picture of Christ. His redemption was precious. And he meets the requirements. So tonight if you're here and you feel like everything is falling apart like Naomi, take comfort. Not in the shallow, everything will be fine. Hold on, pain ends. You know, No, it's not that. It's that you have a redeemer. And if you're here tonight, you don't know the Redeemer. And you're like Naomi, you go, there is no hope in the world. Hear the words of Boaz and in them hear the words of Christ. Fear not. I will do what you require. I will come. I will take you. I will redeem you to myself. And if you're here tonight and you do know the Saviour, stop tonight and say, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you have saved me. I thank you that though I was nothing, though I was a poor widow, Spiritually speaking, I had nothing to offer. You came and you accepted me. By your grace, you paid my debt and now I am free. So that, my friends, is the story, part of the story of Ruth. There is a lot there. I I mean, we could have spent a lot more time looking through stuff, but that's where I wanted to take you tonight to show you God's grace to us in the book of Ruth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this story. Lord, an incredible story written, what, 3,000 years ago, and yet there is much for us there today. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you as their Redeemer, doesn't know you as their Boaz, Lord, I pray tonight would be the night where they come and say, Lord, I am spiritually poor and have nothing to offer you, but I ask you to spread your skirt, spread your cloak upon me and, and take me into your family. You have paid the price. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that we would glory in our Redeemer, that we would marvel at the price of our redemption, and Lord, that we would live in love and gratitude to you all the days of our life for the price that was paid. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.